Hey everybody, welcome back to Grace in the Gray. Excited to have you here as we're going to use the black and white of Scripture to speak into the gray areas of our culture today. Uh, we're going to talk about a topic that uh, some people are very passionate about. I would say that most people that complain about church complain about this topic. Uh, and that is the topic of worship music. So I'm excited to introduce my little brother, Ben, who is on staff with us uh, here at Cedar Creek as our Banks Mill Campus worship leader. Um, just to discuss worship music, its its role, maybe its history in church, and just kind of have an ongoing conversation about worship music that maybe will help you figure out why we do songs in church if you're completely outside of it, and then maybe how you could maybe deeper engage in the the aspect of worship when it comes to specifically music in a congregational setting in um, services. So we'll talk about that. So maybe I'll just open it up with this. Ben, maybe enlighten us because you're also a, a very educated man. He's the smartest <laughs> of our family. I uh, like calling him our resident theologian. Yeah. Um, One of the least educated <laughs> of our family. <laughs> Everybody's got yeah. a master's these yeah. days. Ben did education for fun. We all did it for paper. <laughs> so uh, maybe a little bit of your understanding of worship music as it relates to Christian history or church history. Oh gosh, that's a tough one. Uh, so one of the most difficult things to figure out, at least in how it relates to modern worship, is trying to figure out what kind of hermeneutical framework you approach scripture with in the first place. So when you go to a passage that may have something to do about worship, how do you know what you can versus what you can extrapolate out of that to figure out what worship should look like in a modern context? Um, as far as like the historical development of it, um, I have to confess, I know shockingly little about it, <laughs> and I mean shockingly little. Um, most of my interest has been trying to determine what kind of hermeneutical framework you should be working with. And what I mean by that is, um, like when you see a passage that's about worship in the Old Testament, when we know a lot of the things from the Old Testament aren't necessarily relevant um, for how we do things in a modern context versus the New Testament, it's a much more popular opinion that a lot of the worship that they did is something to be emulated or recreated and stuff like that. So, yeah. So you said hermeneutical. Mm -hmm. That's not a word we toss around every day. Can you explain that? <laughs> yeah, it's basically determining how you read scripture or what you can unpack from it uh, in a way that's actually like praxis oriented or focusing on like what you do with the scripture now. So you use that to help determine what songs we sing on a Sunday morning. You don't just pick what's playing on the radio you are very intentional about what we sing on Sunday mornings. Yeah, and it, in a lot of situations, it's basically focused on determining, first and foremost, what the function of worship is in a congregational setting. So if there's a disagreement about what worship is versus what worship isn't, then it's going to be impossible to figure out what worship should look like. Mm -hmm. So the the identity or the the way that it, that it looks in a modern context should be an outflowing of some kind of working definition for it. I didn't realize worship music could be so controversial. Yeah, I don't I don't know if that's always been the case. Um, I know like during the Reformation, there was some disagreement over what role it should play. Um, and Rick can probably speak to that just as well as I can. There's arguments over like exactly how much should be done. Um, but it seems like uh, maybe post 1960s with the Jesus movement and with the incorporation of like modern culture is where people really started getting passionate about worship in the church and what it should and shouldn't look like. Well, that's what I saw when I Googled. Um, it said that basically in the 1970s, it was the way to bring baby boomers back to church. Yeah, which is really interesting. I don't I don't know exactly like throughout history 
how much work was done to make the music within church sound like the music that happened outside of church. But I know obviously like instrumentation would have been similar because that was the instrumentation that was available at the time and stuff like that. But that's, that's a question that's really interesting. There's also been some really awful attempts at trying to make Christian music culturally relevant. Like you go back and look at like maybe some of those, like our childhood, like you look at some of those like early Christian hip hop artists and it's gotten a lot better with artists like Lecrae and that kind of stuff who have made it more, mainstream sounding but you look at some of those earlier ones and it's like oh man this is this is shockingly close to embarrassing (laughs) yeah (laughs) and i think there's something about like the closer you are chronologically to like some style of worship that's kind of gone out the window the more like cringy it feels in your guts Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, that that 90s era something like when when cedar creek started as a church like it was that style was really integral to what we did on sunday mornings but now you go back and listen to it and it has like a, a very particular effect. Yeah, I, 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 str- I don't know if struggle is the right word, but I, I kind of wrestle with, especially now in modern culture. And this is, I did 10 years in student ministry. I think some of this flows out of the charismatic movement in the Christian faith right now in terms of using worship music. The danger of using worship music almost as emotional manipulation, mm-hmm. right? Like we, we sing these songs that repeat these phrases that almost become become have a tendency to become a mantra that we sing over and over again and i we used to joke when i was in student ministry about the last night of student ministry camp would be cry night and we would sing these songs that were over and over again until everybody was crying and and doing those kind of things and how would you how would you tell people maybe to protect yourself from or some guardrails that maybe they could put up when it comes to music when it like worship music specifically to protect yourself from being emotionally manipulated or or just setting up something that maybe helps you actually be worshiping in the presence of God um, and not just allowing yourself to be manipulated by music, which has a tendency to do that. Yeah, well, I think it's difficult because the reason we use music, I think, is exactly that reason. I think it's okay to be emotionally affected by the music. Mm -hmm. That's what music is designed for. That's the reason that it, it crescendos, it gets bigger, and then it comes down to a low moment. I think when you get in trouble is when the like the reaction to the music is completely independent from the content that the music is uh, presenting, like namely the lyrics. If you're if you really have n- nothing going on in your mind as far as what the m- lyrics mean for your life, but you're still being emotionally affected, then you're probably having some things pulled out of you that aren't necessarily healthy or aren't necessarily there. Um, so how do we how do we get there? You're saying, you know, you you see the lyrics on the screen and you're getting emotional, but you don't connect with the lyrics because maybe you don't have the no, biblical I'm saying, knowledge. What I'm saying is that you're having a reaction to the actual sound of the music versus the meaningfulness of the lyrics. Gotcha. Um because you I don't I don't know how many people are of like a frame of mind or a personality predisposition to react this way, but even music that has absolutely no lyrics, you could listen to a classical piece or an operatic piece piece and have this intense emotional response and there's nothing wrong with that again the music is designed for that but Mm -hmm. in a in a in a worship context that's corporate because that's not what it's for uh that's where things get a little bit dangerous i think yeah Um, so that i guess that's my question is how do we get there how do we receive worship music the way that it is intended yeah that's that's difficult because i think it's a process that takes place over time and it's also a process that takes place in community um, which is why we do corporate worship corporately. Mm-hmm. Um, I think being attentive to the words and also 
if you're if you're not worshiping in Cedar Creek, for example, find a place where the words that are being sung are reflected of scriptural truth, mm-hmm. um, which requires obviously the prerequisite of being somewhat familiar with what scripture has to say about right. who God is and who we are. That's what's changed over the years for me. Before digging into the Bible, it was an emotional connection to not to what the words were speaking into my heart. It was just, you know, whatever thoughts were going through my head, but I didn't connect it to scripture. Yeah. But now that I've spent more time in the word, it has a whole different meaning. Like I'm, I'm actually yeah. worshiping yeah. by singing these songs. Yeah. And it's, it really is a dangerous and difficult line to tread. Cause I'll, I'll pick songs that I know musically like are, are going to get people going. They're going to elicit some kind of emotional response. And I know, I know the risk that comes with that, that there are people who will have some kind of response to that. And, and it may not be, you know, fully backed by an understanding of what the significance of the words to the song are. But to me, it's worth the risk because when we worship corporately, we're we're talking about singing about things that are that are on a deeper level than intellectual awareness. They're on a <laughs> different level, a deeper level than just knowing that something is true or isn't true. Um, and I, I think the way that we get to experience that is by some kind of culmination of uh, not only an intellectual understanding, but an emotional response to that intellectual awareness. Yeah, I thought about that, and you were talking about the Reformation, and I was reading that um, as a guy who studied Calvin specifically a great deal. Mm-hmm. Um, n- nobody, like, tune out. I'm, I'm not that guy. but uh, <laughs> Anymore. <laughs> yeah, I once was. I am reformed from that. <laughs> um, but uh, one of the hymns that, that he was passionate about was actually written based out of Psalm 13, which if you read Psalm 13, is David's kind of question and he's hiding in a cave and it's like, how long will you forsake me? And it's so, it's so different than maybe what we would think of worship music as now, because mm-hmm. that's not a, you know, that's not a chipper ditty to sing. Uh, how long will you hide your face from me? Yeah. But the end of that chapter, of course, is that, that God is with him in the caves, in the valleys, all of those kind of things. And it's that I think one of the powerful things if, as maybe I've matured in my faith and just been a part of it and plugged into congregational worship is the reminder of when I don't feel, when my circumstances don't permit me to feel the words that I'm singing are true, the power in being around people whose circumstances are different than mine and who may be able to do that and just standing beside them and being able to be encouraged by where they're at versus where I am and be reminded of God's faithfulness despite the fact that maybe I can't physically stuff it down into the way that I feel right yeah. now, you know, that I can't. So I think that's a definitely a an interesting thing. Do you think there's... We've talked a little bit about this. Would you say that there's any inherent danger in worship music that exists that maybe we should be careful of? Mm. Yeah, so the the philosophy that I use when I'm kind of building a set list or um, selecting songs, you know, for the long term to introduce to our congregation, the philosophy I've adopted is um, there's there's basically there's a bifurcation in in worship music, which is on one hand, you have the form or the style, and on the other hand, you have the content, the lyricism, stuff like that. And this, I may be repeating what I've, what I've already been saying, but this is just a different way to say it. And the way I think of it is, especially because we're a church that um, wants to provide services on Sunday morning that's enriching for believers, no matter where they are uh, in their faith walk, but we also want to present services that are uh, welcoming and open to somebody who may not have the same spiritual background. And because of that, the philosophy that I've kind of built around around song selection is um, the form or the style will always be dedicated to the non-believer. 
whereas the the lyrics, the content will always be dedicated to uh, somebody who is a believer. And I think when you have those two things reversed, or maybe you have both of those things dedicated to somebody who's not a believer, like trying to to simplify or whitewash uh, some of the beliefs that uh, Christ followers have, that's what's dangerous. And it's really, really easy to start doing that, especially um, especially when some of the things that are being sung about or espoused in worship music is difficult to swallow, difficult to unpack, difficult to you know deal with. So, yeah, I think, and I would I would encourage people like preventing some of that danger, especially because inside of the charismatic movement, there's been so much of that like figurative language that's been incorporated. And that's all music. It's not mm-hmm. just worship music, but you know, there's these, this figurative language that if you're, if you're not a part of the faith or you're exploring the faith, you can get into, I've seen some funny memes about like worship music that we mm-hmm. sing. If you have no idea, you know, like set a fire down in my soul. And if you have no idea what we're talking about, it's like, uh, Ouch. No, my, my soul's good. Actually. I think I'm, I'm fine. I don't need anything to be set on fire inside of me at all. Um, but uh, like, I, and I think, I would encourage Christians to be open to questioning and to be educated uh-huh. enough to like to be passionate about your knowledge enough to be able to answer questions or to be willing to say, I don't know, and find answers to questions for people. Mm-hmm. And then I would encourage non-believers to, to, and believers alike to be willing to question, right? To be willing yeah. to ask, hey, I, I don't understand this line or I don't understand this chorus or I don't understand this verse or whatever it may be in any particular song and be willing to inside of community i think community worship one of the benefits of that is hey we're doing this as a community and that's again driving at this core doctrine of christianity that we're together right like that we're yeah. we're together and we might not know all of the answers all of the time but again just like i might not be able to feel what this song is encouraging me to feel i can be encouraged mm-hmm. by the people around me that are in different circumstances that can just like i might not know mm-hmm. right but somebody around me may somebody around me may be at a different point in their faith walk. And I think there's this cultural context that we bring to our Christian faith that says, because they know something that I don't know, they're more valuable than I am, right? Like yeah. they're, they're at this higher standard where it's, no, they're just different. Like they're at a different spot than you're at. And there's, you know, there's, everybody brings value to that equation because there's going to be moments where, where the youthfulness of it allows you to feel and trust completely God's promises because you haven't been, you haven't had the Psalm 13 moment where it feels like I've done what you've asked me to do and you're not here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That it's the youthfulness of faith that allows sometimes people to sing that song even, you know, aside from the circumstances of life because they haven't had that harsh interaction with suffering and those kind of things. So I think asking questions, being willing to answer questions and engage in worship is a, is a cool thing for me. Yeah, and that, there there's an interesting ex- aspect of like worship music in particular as like a means of re- revealing who God is, because I do believe that that's part of its function. Um, you see in acts, uh, God descends on the, those in the upper room. You see him as a tongue of flame, all that stuff. Um, I think God reveals himself through worship, through the act of corporate worship, but the difficult part is so like if, if scripture is another way for God to be able to reveal himself. Um, so we have scripture, we can read scripture, there becomes like this issue of of interpretation but then with scripture we have thousands of years uh of people reading and interpreting it that we can lean on to come to something like christian orthodoxy like this is how for the most part people have read and understood this passage we have that as a benefit um we have uh the ability to 
place it in its historical context. We have all of these things that are significant for being able to come to what we can believe is the most accurate interpretation of the words of scripture. The lyrics of worship songs, especially nowadays when they're being cranked out like 15 at a time, several times a year by, you know, five to 10 major recording artists. There's just tons of them. And by the time you're starting to figure out and grasp what they mean, they're releasing more. So they don't have that like rich history of interpretation. And that can be really difficult because art, art in its like nature is something that needs to be interpreted. It's not something that's going to be apparent on his face. And it's exactly for one of the reasons you pointed out that there is figurative language in it. Um, and that gets really difficult and I'm, I'm honestly not sure what to do with that. Um, yeah, it doesn't seem to get enough time to be interpreted and like adopted into something like a, like a Christian Orthodox view because it, yeah, I think that's one of my struggles specifically like with, with our generation, you know, and the younger generations is it's this, it's the, it's the attention deficit culture that we live in. Right. And it's, mm-hmm play that song three or four times and then give me new songs and I don't want to sit in those songs. But I think there's such value in lack of a better way to word this, marinating in the truth of these songs or hopefully the truth of the songs that we're singing and then allowing them just like you would God's word to to actually permeate into something more than just a knowledge base into something that does push past an emotional level into a soul transforming, spirit awakening, enlightening kind of okay, yeah, this is reminding me of God's promises. And I think there's just this danger of, because there is five artists that push out 15 songs every two mm-hmm. months. And we we want, every church wants to push and be the cutting edge, cultural, culturally relevant, all of those things. And yeah. I think some of that, if we're not careful, has a tendency to rob us as believers of the ability to, just like if all you ever do is skim one chapter of the Bible every single day and never dive into the scripture of it. Like, yeah, yeah there's, there's going to be some value in that, right? You're still spending time in God's word, but not really allowing it to permeate deep into your spirit. And then when difficult moments arise to be what maybe the spirit presses to the forefront of your mind, um, to yeah. sit in and to trust in and to walk and to walk in. And so, yeah, I think that's good. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, but so interestingly, we, we've spent like a, a pretty good chunk of time talking about like the significance of the lyrics and stuff like that. And I think that makes sense because it's what matters most, but it's not the, the lyrics, the content, they're not what end up getting talked about by most people. They're not the, the area of interest for most people. They're not the reason why people will or won't go to a church for most people. Most of it comes down to exactly the style, um, which is part of the reason that that bifurcation and in, in the philosophy of worship that I operate with exists and, where most of the disagreements come from is because you have you have the style on the one hand and then you know the content on the other but the style is what most people want to fight about yeah, um, so what's your favorite my favorite yeah your favorite <laughs> song your favorite one to have oh, on a no. sunday morning <laughs> i the catch flack for this all the time the one I, that speaks to your soul i don't like most. worship music <laughs> <laughs> i don't let me rephrase that and be really specific about what i mean because uh my job may be on the line. <laughs> what, what I mean is that if I'm if I'm uh, looking to music as a source of entertainment, um, which is where a lot of modern worship music gets consumed these days, which is so interesting to me. Um, but I'm I'm not looking to worship music. I love corporate worship. I'm obsessed with corporate worship. I'm I'm so honored uh, to be kind of the lead of the helm for the team that leads our 
congregation and corporate worship because I believe corporate worship has a specific function and I believe that the songs are written to fulfill that function. That's not to say that you can't enjoy the richness of those songs in a more private context. I know my wife, for example, is she's constantly listening to worship music. It drives that's me insane. okay, right? Like you can turn on Spotify or Pandora and listen. Yeah, on your of own. course. <laughs> and there's there's something there's something really deep and beautiful about being able to experience a moment of God's presence in that way. Um, it's just not it's not how I'm shaped. Um, which, yeah. So I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that I have a favorite. My because it honestly it depends on uh, how God uses. Uh, a song in corporate worship and, and it could be different every time yeah and it could be different songs it could kind of bounce around or it could be because you know we'll introduce a song and for whatever reason it'll be a banger and people be absolutely loving it and you'll see those physical manifestations of worship which aren't everything but they are at least an indicator of authentic worship um you'll have people verbally respond uh, and stuff like that in services and for a time those are my favorite until <laughs> You know, we we get to see another song that we introduce to our congregation that they respond to in a similar way. So, uh, I don't. What's a what's a song right now that that I guess you guys would be able to answer that just as well as I would. Have you guys heard a song that we've done recently that's been like you've noticed people around you responding in a way that they don't to others? Just this week, I mean, "Son of Suffering," that one. Yeah. Oof. Well, and that's that's really interesting, especially because we were talking about like the significance of suffering in worship. And that's, yeah, I mean, you have the entire book of Lamentations. It's like this codified yeah. collection of well, Israel being miserable. <laughs> well, and I think suffering is is one of those, like, unique attributes of life that everyone, regardless of faith background, regardless of yeah. what everyone has in common, right? Because we would, we would attribute it as believers to a fallen, broken humanity, right? That the world is broken, all of us suffer. Um, and we find comfort even in a God who would know that suffering, right? But, yeah. All of us, regardless of if you're a believer or not, are drawn to this concept of suffering because it's a shared, it's a shared thing that all of us walk through at some point in our life. And if you haven't, then the bad news that you're getting from this podcast today is you're going to. Yeah. Uh, at some point, you're going to lose loved ones. You're going to have these difficult seasons of life. And so I think that's, I think that's one of the things that I value the most about worship music. And and full transparency, I'm with you. It's not my. It's not. It's not even my favorite part of a service. I'm. But I'm a preacher, so by <laughs> by default, I'm like, let's you know, let's just preach for an hour. And but I know like that that would be a church of like four people, right? And nobody <laughs> would ever get anything except for those four people uh, that are there. Um, and that's probably an overstatement, but whatever. Um, you so know, you don't have a favorite? Uh, I I do, but mine uh, mine. If, if someone stood on the stage and read the lyrics of his favorite, it would probably be, yeah, it would be just, just as, as impactful. Yeah, just, yeah. 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 Then we could do like the little snaps, like you clap it, like one of those little poetry. Slam poetry. Yeah. <laughs> we could do it that way. No, I, hold on, because I'm here for that church. If we could go ahead and plant <laughs> gonna, that out, go ahead and plant that church. We'll make Slam that poetry church. <laughs> yeah. Um, I my my favorite have always been like the the modern remakes of the old school traditional hymns i love i love theology i love like the the years and years of teasing the deeper meanings of like the the interpret like the accurate but the most accurate forms of biblical interpretation like ben was talking about earlier and so i love one of the old thing like the one of the things that i love about those hymns is like how deeply rooted they were in like in scripture and in helping the congregation that was singing mm-hmm. them together corporately. And my understanding of it was a lot of that was caused by the early centuries and the lack of the ability to read. Like so many of the congregation may not have had the ability to read 
And so this was a way to set to a melody these deep doctrinal truths yeah. that they could remember. And, and it's so, interesting because it serves a similar function now, but there's a slight are difference. Saying in that, that, they're saying that people can't read. Yeah, they can't. What a, <laughs> no, uh, but that's that's the interesting part is that whereas like for like that uh, earlier context, it was because they can't read. Nowadays, it seems to be it still serves that function because people won't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but music is something that can still be a hook to grab people's mm-hmm. attention and. Yeah, talk, talking about suffering is especially interesting because there was, I remember there was a book that I read when I was in uh, college as part of like a church planning class and part of the discussions that, part of one of the discussions we had to have was uh, what what kind of uh, worship or music would you want to have in a church if you were planning one? It was kind of this like imaginary like thought project where you were planning a church in your brain, you had to write a paper on it. And uh, the book was like uh, the 10 trends of churches that are growing or something like that. And it had basically taken a survey of growing churches and tried to figure out in these major areas, what were they doing? And one of the things they were doing was they had an atmosphere of celebrative worship and they're growing. That's okay. That's, that's not always evidence of something that's healthy or something that's good. Um, But just trying to figure out, okay, if you're establishing an environment of celebrative worship, what does that do for lament? Because lament clearly has some kind of significant meaning for a believer. Where are you putting that in your service? And and music or art or poetry, those kind of things are, they're made to be able to reflect a, a deep uh, emotional reality in a way that other things can't. So, yeah, that's, and here's another interesting thing that's a little bit off topic if I can, sorry. <laughs> of course. So I, I don't remember where I heard this. I think it was like a YouTube video or something like that. But a guy was talking about these festivals that they do somewhere in like uh, India, I think, where they would experience some kind of like horrible suffering. Like they would put like fish hooks in their nose, oh god, like rods <laughs> through their cheeks. These are like inch and a half rods. I had the great misfortune of seeing a picture of this. Nice. Anyway, it's this it's this brutal festival that they do in India and then with all of these things like attached to them um, they'll walk to some kind of agreed upon location and this is where the interesting part is so the people who were studying this phenomenon would ask people after they had completed this like religious rite to uh, give a donation to some nonprofit for like a local charity and they asked two different kinds of people there were the people who were just there they didn't actually participate in the festival and they would ask the people who had participated in the festival and the people who had pr- participated in the festival would give more money. Hmm. Oh. Is that not weird? So what what was the conclusion of this study? That because they had gone through that suffering? intentional suffering or culturally meaningful suffering actually produces sociological benefits. Oh. So uh, like you can experience suffering that's not culturally meaningful. And in that sense, like it, it wouldn't necessarily produce anything beneficial for you. And this is something that like, that's just suffering to suffer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's just, yeah. Well, think about just this, bad is, luck. this might be a stretch, but even after nine 11, how that traumatic event, that suffering brought the nation together. Yeah. Something like trauma bonding. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So it, and that's like, you brought up a really good point when it comes to suffering, which is like, everybody's gonna suffer like it's an inevitable part of human existence um but there seems to be a really really significant uh difference in people who suffer meaninglessly and people who suffer meaningfully everybody's gonna suffer what if you have control over it are you going to suffer for seems to be a really really important question and 
in my view, at least in the reading I've done of some other world religions, like Christianity has like a very, very uh, significant and full bodied response to like suffering in the world in a way that a lot of other world religions don't um, primarily manifest in the fact that the God of Christianity died, <laughs> suffered, suffered and died. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not just physically, but also spiritually. Mm. And that's, yeah. When I, when I look at um, churches that may be growing because they're, they're creating these environments of like celebrative worship, like that's important. We have untold number of things to celebrate. Um, but there's also something significant about the process of suffering for worship um, that I think it's easy to gloss over. So this Sunday, if you come, we're going to stand on the stage and everyone will have a chance to just share your suffering. Yeah. Just tell everybody. We'll actually you. provide the fish hooks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> come to Cedar yeah. Creek Church. We can't explain the decrease in our attendance this Sunday. Yeah. yeah I don't know. <laughs> also, uh, now I get to go to Cabela's on the clock to get some fish hooks. So thank you for that, Beth. You're welcome. Well, one that feels more uh, celebratory one of my favorites is living hope yeah <laughs> but and you're laughing because that's everyone everyone feels that way is that the song that you see no, hands like, raised? i don't know if i'm gonna get in trouble for saying this my my wife is more than happy to sing any song that i request of her and she has a great attitude about it but she has uh, sung that one so many times but, that she's but she gets the crack in her voice and it <laughs> oh it just wrecks me like, yeah it's is a good that one. why we're, she doesn't like here, it <laughs> we're here for the crying that's what we're saying <laughs> Speaking of emotional responses to words. Yes. Yeah. But it's so interesting because like she'll she'll listen to that song a thousand times and not have that emotional response. But there's something different about being in a corporate. Mm -hmm. And I don't know exactly what it is. I think I think part of the function of worship is to to have believers like collectively orient themselves toward a single goal, which is something that happens so rarely um, and something that I think is happening less and less uh, just in a cultural context. Well, we may not solve that problem on the podcast today, <laughs> <laughs> but it's been a really cool conversation. And um, thank you, Ben, yeah. for stepping out of your comfort zone, even though I don't understand because you're behind the mic every week. Um, but thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. And um, thanks for listening to the Grace in the Gray podcast, where we use the black and white of scripture to speak truth into the gray areas of culture. We'll be back in two weeks.